Lord, thank you for a good day to rise and worship you. Thank you for what you're doing um, in this church. Thank you for the honor and privilege of worshiping you. And when we say um, honor and privilege, we mean that because um, it, if, this, if this teaching series teaches us anything, it's that we don't deserve to be here. Um, we shouldn't be here. And the only reason that we rise on a Sunday morning to worship you is because you did something in our lives. We are trophies of sovereign grace. And so I pray that it would be in humility that we enter into this discussion again, um, trusting in you um, to, to, um, to show us what you have for us to see in the scriptures, and, and that we would humbly submit our, our reason, um, our objections, all that we bring, all of our presuppositions, we would humbly submit them to your word this morning. Be with us, with, give us wisdom and give us uh, grace. In your name we pray, for your glory. Amen. Okay. Um, who's the deacon on duty? Might need a, I don't know if we're need. Before we put him to work finding chairs, uh, you guys are going to have to just fill in. There's some seats there and there's some up here, so we'll make you, uh, there you go. Okay, uh, let me remind us where, what, what this is and where we're going. Um, it, it, many of you have heard, heard me say this, probably getting tired of me saying this, explaining this, but for those of you who have not been with us, um, our session thought it would be important for um, me to have an opportunity every year to teach on some of the distinctives that people coming to our church often struggle with, uh, questions that we often get when people come to our congregation, are new to our congregation. And so what we've done is we take the month of May and we shut down adult Sunday school and we combine it all um, and give me a platform to teach on some of this stuff. Um, last May we did infant baptism, which is often a question we receive. And um, we record these and put them on the internet so that you can go and listen to them and you can use that as a resource. Um, and then this year, um, wanted to pick up the topic of, of God's uh, sovereign election, um, predestination, Calvinism, however, however you want to say that. Um, the, the first week we dealt with the question of why it's so hard to believe in this doctrine, and it is hard, and I, and I went through kind of cultural and contextual reasons that makes it difficult for us to understand this doctrine. Um, last week, we took a more systematic approach, and what I mean by that is I just went through um, the classic five points of Calvinism, um, which have their limitations, granted, but they are um, the most enduring um, systematics of our salvation, of our soteriology, of how we believe man is saved. So we went through that last week, and then I said this week is going to be more of a biblical defense. We're going to just exegete Scripture, specifically Romans 9. Um, next week, we've got two more weeks after this one. Next week, um, I am going to deal with um, objections and questions against this doctrine and passages um, so I'm going to, I'm going to um, dialogue and um, address questions that you often ask in response to this. Um, and then also look at some passages 
that look like on the surface that they, um, they're speaking against this doctrine. So questions and passages. If you have questions um, that you want me to specifically address next week, I can't promise you that I will, but uh, you can suggest those questions. Um, and, and my email is really simple, robert at tcpca.org. Um, robertspca.org. You can you can uh, shoot me an email um, with the question that you want answered. But I've done this long enough that I, I'm pretty good at anticipating um, what people ask in response to this um, theology. Um, I, I pretty much know um, know what uh, most people want to hear. So I, I think I'm going to be able to anticipate those questions. But if there's something you want me to address, um, you can you can shoot me an email this week. All I want us to do is make this, I want to make this obvious point. Scripture is ultimately the determining factor on what we believe, on our doctrine. Um, Exegesis, not philosophy, is the final arbiter on this issue. And here's why I say that. What I have found is that, if you remember... um, when we were defining our terms a couple weeks ago, we, talk, we talked about there's kind of an Arminian way of viewing salvation and a Calvinist way of view, viewing salvation, Arminianism and Calvinism. What I have discovered is that Arminianism is largely rooted in philosophical um, arguments, um, objections, using objections that we typically have. Um, and Calvinism is more rooted in exegetical arguments. Arminianism makes more sense at first to the natural mind. Calvinism makes more sense to Scripture. Um, when, there are two books that I had to read in seminary in, my, in one of my systematic theology classes. Um, one, one was written by an uh, Asbury professor um, who's no longer at the, at, at the seminary. But um, he wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Calvinist. And then my systematics professor um, at Covenant wrote the book, Why I'm Not an Arminian. And so this, uh, this publisher, you know, just to, you can see you know, what they're trying to do there. They're trying to get you to buy a bunch of books. But, but uh, the publishers basically got an Arminian uh, Asbury uh, professor and a Calvinist uh, Covenant professor and said, we all write books at each other. And uh, they did it. And, um, and we had to read both of these books and critically engage them. And, um, and, and, and here what you, here's what, if you go look at those books, here's what you're going to see. Why I'm Not a Calvinist is a philosophy book that leverages our objections, mainly Western individualism objections, like a lot of what I talked about the first week. Um, things like, is it fair? Is this doctrine fair? How can we have security of salvation? How do we know if we're elect? What, why, why evangelize? Th- these kind of objections. It leverages philosophical objections to disprove Calvinism. Why I'm not an Arminian is largely an exegetical book that leverages Scripture to disprove Arminianism. And that matters to me. That really does. Um, we are called to place our reasoning and our minds beneath the authority of sacred revelation. Um, we, are, we are called to trust Scripture more than we trust our cultural presuppositions. Um, I'm a Calvinist not because it makes sense to my mind, although when you allow Scripture to critique your mind and critique your worldview and begin to see things from the vantage point of divine revelation, the doctrine does start to make more sense. 
But I'm a Calvinist not because it makes sense to me. I'm a Calvinist because I can't get past what Scripture says. And, um, you know, I spoke last week when we got into the systematics. I spoke and, and, and went through just a litany of passages. And a couple of you came up to me and said, wow, I was, just, I was blown away because I didn't realize how much Scripture speaks to this. And, and, that, and honestly, that was just a taste of, of um, passages that I could, I could have mentioned. But um, the watershed passage on this topic, the wall that I think Arminianism runs into and cannot get through is Romans 9. Um, John Piper, to whom thousands upon thousands would say was the, the prophet of a generation who introduced them to God's sovereignty and salvation... He came to Calvinism because of Romans 9. I want to read a little bit from his biography um, to kind of set us up for this passage. This is Piper's words. When I entered seminary, I believed in the freedom of my will in the sense that it was ultimately self-determining. I had not learned this from the Bible. I absorbed it. This is week one that I'll talk a lot about this. I absorbed it from independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day of our lives in America. But in my class on salvation, we dealt um, head-on with the doctrine of unconditional election. Romans 9 was the watershed text and the one that changed my life forever. Thanks be to God's mercy and patience. At the end of the semester, I wrote in my blue book for the final exam, quote, Romans 9 is like a tiger going about devouring free willers like me. That was the end of my love affair with human autonomy and the ultimate self-determination of my will. My worldview simply could not stand against the scriptures, especially Romans 9. And it was the beginning of a lifelong passion to see and savor the supremacy of God in absolutely everything. Romans 9, a tiger devouring free willers like me. Um, I want us to look... Um, at this passage, at the most detailed passage, you can open your Bibles there, at the most detailed passage on divine election, um, and I would like us all to do our best to lay down our cultural assumptions and just humbly submit ourselves to divinely inspired scripture. Let me set the context of the passage because it's very important. Paul is dealing with the Gentile dilemma that is so prevalent in the New Testament. What is the Gentile dilemma? The dilemma is that the Gentiles are inheriting the promises that were given to Israel. Um, The scandal of the gospel is that those who are not descendants of Abraham, who are not Jew by birth, are receiving the promises that were given to the children of Abraham, to the Jews, God's blessing and salvation. Gentiles are receiving those promises. Now, Paul's ultimate answer to that dilemma is that children of Abraham are not those who have the flesh of Abraham but have the faith of Abraham, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Likewise, we believe, we have faith in God of Abraham and it is credited to us as righteousness. So by faith, we are children of Abraham, we are inheritors of his promise. That's always Paul's answer to that question. And, um, and, he, and he answers it that way in Romans, to be honest with you. But here, in Romans 9, he takes a different, more controversial approach. Paul essentially says, you know what? What if the Gentiles are receiving God's salvation because God wanted them to? God chose them to. And what if the Jews aren't receiving it because God didn't want them to? Ultimately, it's God's choice. Whom to bless? 
whom to save. And who do you think you are to question God's free and sovereign choice? It's, it, it kind of feels like Paul saying, I'm tired of answering this question, guys. God gets to do what he wants. And if he wants the Gentiles to be saved, the Gentiles are saved. Who do you think you are? That's essentially his argument, and he does it by using a very famous example that they all would be familiar with, but perhaps some of us here are not familiar with, so let me make sure um, you understand the example he's using. We say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we should say, uh, if it went the way it should have gone, we should be saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Isaac had twins. Esau was the noble firstborn. Jacob was the deceptive secondborn. Esau should have been the heir of the promise, but instead Isaac deceived his father and stole Esau's birthright. And then Isaac was renamed Israel. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, and the rest is history. Paul uses that example to explain the doctrine of divine election. Here's what I'm going to do. Romans 9, 11 through 23. I'm going to read the passage once just so we can kind of have a flow of it. And then I'm going to un- spend the rest of our time just unpacking it. Um, I'm just going to kind of do exegetical work with it. Just kind of go through it and we can have our Bibles open and we can see what it says. So, presuppositions aside, let's just listen to this passage. Though they, meaning I, Jake, um, Esau... Um, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, then why does he find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, that's in your Bible. Um, There are attempts to get around it. Um, Those attempts... Um, I've engaged a lot of them. I think they ultimately fail. The, the most common one is just to say that this passage is not talking about 
um, individuals, though it clearly is, but it's talking about, um, you know, God's election of Israel and, and all this stuff, like kind of a larger election, which still is problematic. Um, he's still electing, even if you go that route. But clearly, um, if you're faithful to the scriptures, um, it, it's, it's, it's talking about God's election, not just of nations, but of people. Um, okay, let's, let's look into it. Um, here's, here's the way I'm, I'm breaking down the passage. Verses 11 through 13 is just the, the reality of God's sovereign election. And then the rest of it is Paul defending God's sovereign election. So I just want to, we're going to look at the reality first. Just let him throw it out there to us. And then we're going to follow his arguments as he goes about defending it. Okay? Uh, our 11 through 13 is just, the, is just the reality of his election. Here's what you need to know. Everyone has a doctrine of predestination um, because it's all over the Bible. You cannot escape it. Everybody has a doctrine of God's election, predestination, however you want to say it. The, prob- the, the, the only difference is there are two different ways to view it. There is conditional election and there's unconditional election. Now we, Calvinists, you of TULIP is unconditional election, Correct. So we believe in unconditional election, not conditional election. And what that means is that we do not believe that here's the way God did, does election and predestination. That he looks down uh, in his omniscience, he looks down the corridors of time, he sees th- who's going to choose him, and based upon their choice of him, he predestines them. That would be conditional election, meaning that his choice of you is conditioned upon your choice of him. That he knows you're going to choose him someday, and therefore because he knows you're going to choose him, he'll choose you. That's conditional election. Unconditional election is the sovereign free will and counsel of the triune God elects his people, and they choose him ultimately because he has ordained that they would choose him. So it's not based upon anything that they have done, it's just based upon his Election, unconditional election. So is election conditional or unconditional? Arminians would say it's unconditional. Um, Classic orthodoxy and Calvinism says, no, I messed that up, didn't I? You know what I'm saying. Um, I'll say it, though, for the recording. (laughs) Arminians would believe in conditional election. Um, We in the the Reform, uh, classically Calvinistic tradition would believe unconditional election. Why? Um, well, Romans 9, <laughs> there are many passages that speak to it, but Romans 9 says it, and you can't get around it. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. So he's trying to make the point. This is before he was able to look at who's better, who's doing good, who's doing bad, who's going to choose me, who's not going to choose me, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, might stand is probably a better Greek, in order that his purpose might stand. So his purposes in election are the reason he chooses. Not, he reemphasizes it, not because of works, not because of what you're going to do, like you're better, therefore I'll choose you, you cho- you're going to choose me, so I'll choose you. No, 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 not because of works, but only unconditionally because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. That's the conditions of election. And the conditions is God's sovereign free will, not the work of man. So because of him who calls, and it's, it's for, verse 13 is an offense to us. It's an offense to our human autonomy. It's an offense to our view of man. Not based upon any reason, God says, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Now, do not get hung up on the hated language. God does not do hatred like us, Okay. 
Um, this is righteous and just indignation towards sinners. In other words, verse 13 says, I chose to give Jacob what he did not deserve, and I chose to give Esau what he did deserve. Why? Because I wanted to. It's my will. It's my counsel. That's the reality of divine election. It's not just here. It's all over Scripture. Many I I spoke to um, last week, but this is the clearest, clearest decree. Jacob I love, Esau I hated, and it had nothing to do with them. It was my counsel. But what is so persuasive and compelling about Romans 9 is that this is where Paul goes on the defense of God's election. Usually, the Bible, and even Paul, just takes it for granted. Just takes it for granted. He just says, Ephesians 1, he doesn't give any defense for it. He just says it. Uh, Romans 8, he doesn't give a defense for it. He just says it. But what makes Romans 9 unique is that the Bible asks the questions that we ask when we're confronted with this doctrine. And that's why it's so important. The Bible, uh, the Bible anticipates what you're going to ask, and it answers those questions to this doctrine. So that's where I want to spend most of our time. Let's unpack that. The defense of God's election. So we're just going to kind of go slowly through this exegetically. First, uh, 14 through 16. He asked the first question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, no, there's not. But then he tells you why there's not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will. It's unconditional. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here's what he's saying here. God reserves the right to have mercy on whomever he pleases. It belongs to God. God is allowed to have mercy on whomever he wants. The word mercy is the key here. He owes sinners nothing. He owes creation nothing. But we are doubly undeserving. We are, just, be, just because he created us, and Paul's going to get to this in a minute, just by the fact that he's the creator and we're the creature, he can create us and do what he wants with us, okay? So we don't, he doesn't owe us anything, but we're doubly undeserving because not only does he not owe us anything because he's the creator, we are fallen sinful creatures who have despised and defamed his glory have shook our fists in his face and said, we hate you, we love ourselves, we don't want you, we want to be our own God. And so he owes sinners nothing. Actually, that's untrue. He owes sinners justice. Mercy is what he shouldn't do, not what he should do. He owes nobody here or on this planet, he owes nobody mercy. If God were to hand over every single fallen creature who have defamed His glory and destroyed His creation, if He were to hand every single person over to His justice, then no injustice would be done. That would not just be okay for Him to do, it would be the right thing for Him to do, the truest thing for Him to do. Now again... We talked about this the first week. You've got to see things from God's perspective. I know when you look at me and you, we don't look like that. We don't look like we deserve that. But when you see things from the vantage point of God and His glory, it, it, it becomes apparent that not only should he not, should he, does He not owe us mercy, the right and true thing is to give us justice. Heaven would applaud as justice is served. But God says, it is my right. If I want to, to have mercy. 
I'm God. I'm allowed to have mercy if I want to, and praise His name, He does want to. It is His right to extend mercy to those who don't deserve mercy, those who don't deserve mercy. And nobody is allowed to tell God otherwise. See, I'm flipping the paradigm here. Most people typically say, um, God, God is allowed to have justice, God is allowed to have wrath, and nobody has the right to tell Him not to. I'm trying to flip it to get us to get out of that paradigm to see God has the right to have mercy and nobody has the, tell, has the right to tell him he's not allowed to have mercy. Because what we should be saying to God is you're not allowed to have mercy. You shouldn't do that. And God is saying in Romans 9, I'm allowed to do that if I want to. I can have mercy. There is much he has to do in order to have mercy, namely the death of his son. There's much it's going to cost him. It's going to be a costly decision, but God is saying, I am allowed to have mercy if I want to have mercy. But never, ever, 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 ever do we take a God who has sovereignly chosen to extend mercy, never do we take that and then start to presume that he has to have mercy. And certainly do not presume that he has to have mercy on everyone. It's nonsense. Justice on all is what we should presume. Justice is what we should presume, and then we should be shocked and utterly amazed if and when he chooses to have mercy. Why wouldn't he have mercy on all, is our next question. Okay, he has the right to have mercy. I'll have mercy on whomever I want to have mercy on. Okay, but God, why wouldn't he? And the answer is that God has greater purposes than our man-centered desires. He has greater purposes. He's a bigger story than me. In my desires. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you understand what that verse just said? The entire Egyptian empire was created so that God could show off in defeating them. Pharaoh was raised up, to enslave God's people so that God can make a name for himself by delivering them out of Egypt. So that we could still be here thousands and thousands of years later talking about the mighty works of God as he triumphed over Pharaoh and parted the sea and delivered his people. God does all things for his glory. He does all things to display his glory. And what Paul is saying here is really simple. Part of that glorious display is His power, His wrath, His justice over people. And so He said, use Pharaoh for example. God's purposes are not exclusively, I exist to show everybody mercy. He's saying, I exist for my own glory, and part of that story is Pharaoh, who I raised up just so I can show off and defeat. Verse 18... So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that is going to, um, if you you don't understand the Pharaoh, if you don't understand, well, Scripture as a whole, but if you don't understand the Exodus and the story of Pharaoh, then that's really, really going to seem strange, because it looks like what it's saying there is, you got uh, natural humanity, and God says, "You you be hardened, uh, you'll, you'll be mer- I'll be, have mercy on you, but you be hardened. Um, that's not fair. Um, when, you, when, you, um, when you look at the story, 
It's a fascinating story that you can go read. The Lord says to Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then he says, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And I'm going to raise the stakes until I finally triumph over him in the Passover, which ultimately is about Jesus. So I'm going to raise this up until I can get to the Passover and, and, um, as a foreshadow of, of what I'm going to do in Jesus. But he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart so he won't let him go. Then Moses goes, and it happens. Moses goes and said, let my people go. Here's the plague. And then it says, harden, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the answer in Scripture, and again, we've got to live with this tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The answer is both. Now, the way it works out is that we are sinful creatures. So for God to harden our hearts, all that means is that God doesn't restrain what we should be. In other words, God handed Pharaoh over to the hardness of his heart. God handed him over. And Pharaoh did what sinful creatures do apart from the restraining grace of God. God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible for all of their choices. And both of those, the Pharaoh is a perfect illustration of that. God gets glory when we repent, and we are responsible when we don't repent. It's the nature of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So God hands Pharaoh over if he so desires. Verse 19, he raises the next question. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's, if God is sovereign over everything, the next question everybody asks then is, well, then why does he find fault in anything? If God is sovereign over everything, then how can he find fault in anything? Aren't we just robots doing what he has ordained for us to do? How can he find fault? And Paul answers that question. And he answers in a really unexpected way. The first way he answers that question is, who do you think you are? Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, this is, uh, this is, this is uh, Job's, this is the, this is the conclusion of, of Job, right? So Job um, was, was a good man, and um, suffering fell. And when I say suffering, he lost everything. All of his property, all of his family, all dead, um, and, and um, even his physical health. God took him to literally, there's, <laughs> your suffering is nothing compared to Job's suffering. He has worst case scenario here. And the whole book of Job is Job and his friends trying to figure out why. Why did this happen? The problem of evil and suffering. And Job's friends are bringing all these arguments. And on the surface, these arguments sound pretty good. Sound right. And Job's thinking through things and you kind of get let in on his internal processing and all this stuff. And then the end of Job is the conclusion. And it's, and it's exactly what Paul says here. Who do you think you are? Job. Who do you think you are? God says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you answer me. What's with all this you questioning me? I'm going to question you. And you will answer me. And then God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of existence? Where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I formed the sea? And essentially saying is, I'm the creator. You're the creature. Why are you asking me? I should be asking you. And that's what Paul is doing here. To our objections of divine sovereignty, Paul says, who do you think you are? Who are you, O man? Continue on. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's his point. We are creatures. We are creatures who create like our God. We're made in the image of God. So one of the unique things that we do, human beings do, is that we create just like our God creates. We create art. We create technology. We create culture. We create, right? And so what Paul's doing here, we, we, we create, um, we're, we're potters. We, we create clay. What, what are those things called? They, you know, they make stuff. They create. And, and Paul's point here is he's trying to, to get us to see God's perspective by using an illustration from our perspective. And he's saying, do you know how ridiculous it would be if you, out of the same lump of clay, made an ashtray and a beautiful vase for flowers... How ridiculous would it be if the ashtray started yelling at you, why'd you make me this way? Why'd you do that? I wanted to be a vase. And he's saying, that's crazy. That's crazy for what we create to, um, to, to talk back at us and get mad at what we are. Brock's here, he's created a, an app. Uh, I'll, I'll plug your app here, buddy. And it's online, so this is really good. Brock is a brilliant uh, creator of technology. He has an app called Versus. And it's free this weekend? Free this weekend. Brock um, has created the best app for um, memorizing scripture. It's the number what? Boast a bit. What, what number is it? Yeah. It's the best app, number one, to memorize scripture. Okay, what is it of all the apps? Great. So, big time app maker right here. If you want to memorize scripture, download Versus app. And the reason why it's so good is because it's not just traditional scripture memorization. You play games. It kind of, it, 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 you play games to memorize scripture. Well, what if the Versus app said to Brock, hey, I don't like to be a game playing app. I want to be a regular app that doesn't play games. Why'd you make me this way, Brock? It's crazy. Will what is created say to its creator, why did you make me this way? What if what we create got mad at us for the way we create? That's what Paul's point. And the point is that God can do what he wants. But then he does indulge things a bit and let us in a little bit on the counsel of God's sovereign and free will. This is where it gets really compelling. Because it's easy to say, who do you think you are? That's what he says in Job. He doesn't, he doesn't indulge it anymore. He just says, who do you think you are, O man? And again and again and again in Scripture, that's the answer. Who do you think you are? But here in Romans 9, he says, who do you think you are? And then he says, you know what? Let's indulge it a bit. Let's get behind the curtain of the counsel of God's sovereign and free will and see why it is that he would do it this way. So 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath... I stop there. The fall... The fall of man deserves the wrath of God. God will be glorified in all things. What if God wanted to show off his wrath? Is he not allowed to do that? God exists for his own glory. He exists to display his attributes. One of his attributes is hatred of sin. One of his attributes is wrath. What if he wants to show off that he can utterly annihilate sin? What if he wants to show off his justice? He's allowed to do that. But, 
Paul says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, still has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? All right, stop there. He's saying this. God wants to display His wrath and show His power, but He, he, he doesn't pour out wrath. He, he withholds it. He, he's patient with these people that He should not be patient with. Why? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand, unconditional for glory. God does all things for His own glory to display His glory, but... His ultimate glory is the glory of His grace and mercy. And we see that in Ephesians 1. Go read Ephesians 1, teaching on predestination. It's this, it's this heightened, that God, does, God has predestined us according to the praise of His grace. He predestines so that we will praise Him. It's for His praise of His grace. Here's the point that Paul's making here. What if the reality of God's glory and His justice and wrath also served as a necessary backdrop to highlight the brilliance and beauty of His greatest glory, His grace and mercy. That's the argument he's making. He's saying, God wants to show off His his wrath and justice. He wants to demonstrate His wrath and justice. But it's serving a different purpose too, a greater purpose, the glory of His grace. What if justice and wrath was a necessary backdrop a fearful reality that makes grace and mercy the most glorious thing in all of existence. Sproul likes to use the illustration of when you go into a diamond shop, um, they don't have the diamonds in the display case. They don't have them sitting on white cloth. They have them sitting on a black, velvet, dark black cloth, and there's the diamond with the light shining on the diamond. And that black backdrop that nobody notices is there to highlight, show off the glory of the diamond, the beauty of the diamond. And that's the argument Paul is making here. What if his wrath and justice, which is, 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 he's glorified in his wrath and justice, but what if it's serving a greater purpose, his highest purpose, his grace and mercy? And the way it works is that it is this necessary dark reality that we with fear and trembling must face so that when we are saved from that reality, we will spend eternity praising him for his grace. If grace was just given to all of humanity... Just because that's what God did, we would be entitled. We would never thank Him. We would just say, yeah, that's what He does. That's, that's what we should get. Everybody gets grace. That's what we should get. But for you and me and those whom God makes alive in Christ, we know what we should have. I know what I deserve. I stopped when I was writing this. And I just, my God, thank you. I know where I should be. I know what should be my destiny. I know hell is real. I know God does give some what they deserve. And I know that should be me. And God, for some reason, not me, I know that. For some reason, God has said to me, I'm going to have mercy on you, sinner. And because I know hell is real, and I know it's where I should be, I will spend eternity praising Him for His grace. Grace comes alive beneath the backdrop of the reality of His wrath and justice. Some, here's the point. 
Some receive mercy at the hand of God. Some receive justice at the hand of God. Nobody receives injustice at the hands of God. Some receive mercy. Praise His name. Some do receive mercy. Some receive justice. Praise His name. Justice is done. Nobody receives injustice at the hands of God. So we who receive mercy, we who can say, my God, my God, you have had mercy on me. We can spend eternity praising him for his grace, which is his design of all things, to be praised for his glorious grace and mercy. All right, let me pray, and uh, we, will, we will go off to worship. Lord, we, how can we keep from worshiping you? Um, Lord, I know this immediately raises objections. This immediately raises questions. But I pray that we would be able to not go there, that we'd be able to rest in the beauty of this doctrine. That before the foundations of the world, you chose us in Christ to be conformed to your image. You predestined us according to your will. And those you, those you predestined, you have also called. And those you call, you also justify. And also those you justify, you will glorify. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? So tribulation, distress, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written in all these things, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter all the day. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced because of your sovereign election... And only because of that, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because you have decreed from eternity past that we are yours. It is our hope, it is our security, it is our praise, and we will spend eternity praising you for it. And Lord, we praise you that there are many, many more elect to come in. And I pray that this would be a church that gathers the elect of our, of our city and our state. That we, you will bring them in through our witness. And you will raise up a multitude of worshipers for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for dying, for bearing the costs of your Father's eternal decree. When he chose to have mercy, it meant the cross for you. Thank you that you are faithful even unto death. Thank you, Spirit, that you have made us alive. You made us alive in Christ Jesus. We were dead and you made us alive. Thank you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the way you have come together in perfect power and mercy to make us yours. I pray it lead to worship. For your sake. Amen.